Section 2, Part 2 of the Fourteen Orations Against Marcus Antonius, called Philippics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Philippics by Marcus Tullius Cicero. The Second Philippic, Part 2. When victorious, you returned with the legions from Thessaly to Brundisium. There you did not put me to death. It was a great kindness, for I confess that you could have done it, although there was no one of those men who were with you at that time who did not think that I ought to be spared. For so great is men's affection for their country, that I was sacred even in the eyes of your legions, because they recollected that the country had been saved by me. However, grant that you did give me what you did not take from me, and that I have my life as a present from you, since it was not taken from me by you. Was it possible for me, after all your insults, to regard that kindness of yours as I regarded it at first, especially after you saw that you must hear this a reply from me? You came to Brundisium, to the bosom and embraces of your actress. What is the matter? Am I speaking falsely? How miserable is it not to be able to deny a fact which it is disgraceful to confess? If you had no shame before the municipal towns, had you none even before your veteran army? For what soldier was there who did not see her at Brindisium? Who was there who did not know that she had come so many days' journey to congratulate you? Who was there who did not grieve that he was so late in finding out how worthless a man he had been following? Again, you made a tour through Italy with the same actress for your companion. Cruel and miserable was the way in which you led your soldiers into the towns. Shameful was the pillage in every city of gold and silver and, above all, of wine. And besides all this, while Caesar knew nothing of it, as he was at Alexandria, Antonius, by the kindness of Caesar's friends, was appointed his master of the horse. Then he thought he could live with Hippia by virtue of his office, and that he might give horses, which were the property of the state, to Sergius the buffoon. At that time he had selected for himself to live in, not the house which he now dishonors, but that of Marcus Piso. Why need I mention his decrees, his robberies, the possession of inheritances which were given to him, and those too which were seized by him. Want compelled him. He did not know where to turn. That great inheritance from Lucius Rubirius, and that other from Lucius Tercellius, had not come to him. He had not yet succeeded as an unexpected heir to the place of Nius Pompeius, and of many others who were absent. He was forced to live like a robber, having nothing beyond which he could plunder from others. However, we will say nothing of these things, which are acts of a more hardy sort of villainy. Let us speak, rather, of his meaner descriptions of worthlessness. You, with those jaws of yours, and those sides of yours, and that strength of body suited to a gladiator, drank such quantities of wine at the marriage of Hippia, that you were forced to vomit the next day in the sight of the Roman people. Oh, action disgraceful not merely to see, but even to hear of! If this had happened to you at supper, and missed those vast drinking cups of yours, who would have thought it scandalous? But, in an assembly of the Roman people, a man holding a public office, a master of the horse, to whom it would have been disgraceful even to belch, vomiting filled his own bosom, and the whole tribunal with the fragments of what he had been eating, reeking with wine. But he himself confesses this among his other disgraceful acts. Let us proceed, then, to his more splendid offenses. Caesar came back from Alexandria, fortunate, as he seemed at least to himself, 
but in my opinion no one can be fortunate who is unfortunate for the republic the spear was set up in front of the temple of jupiter stator and the property of Nius pompeius magnus miserable that i am for even now that my tears have ceased to flow my grief remains deeply implanted in my heart the property i say of Nius pompeius magnus was submitted to the pitiless voice of the auctioneer on that one occasion the state forgot its slavery and groaned aloud though men's minds were enslaved as everything was kept under by fear still the groans of the roman people were free while all men were waiting to see who would be so impious who would be so mad who would be so declared an enemy to gods and to men as to dare to mix himself up with that wicked auction no one was found except antonius even though there were plenty of men collected round that spear who would have dared anything else one man alone was found to dare to do that which the audacity of everyone else had shrunk from and shuddered at were you then seized with such stupidity or should i rather say with such insanity as to not see if you being of the rank in which you were born acted as a broker at all and above all as a broker in the case of pompeius's property you would be execrated and hated by the roman people and that all gods and all men must at once become and forever continue hostile to you but with what violence did that glutton immediately proceed to take possession of the property of that man to whose valor it had been owing that the roman people had been more terrible to foreign nations while his justice had made it dearer to them when therefore this fellow had begun to wallow in the treasures of that great man he began to exult like a buffoon in a play who has lately been a beggar and has suddenly become rich but as some poet or other says ill-gotten gains come quickly to an end it is an incredible thing and almost a miracle how he in a few not months but days squandered all that vast wealth it was an immense quantity of wine an excessive abundance of very valuable plate much precious apparel great quantities of splendid furniture and other magnificent things in many places such as one was likely to see belonging to a man who was not indeed luxurious but who was very wealthy of all this in a very few days there was nothing left what charybdis was ever so voracious charybdis do i say charybdis if she existed at all was only one animal the ocean i swear most solemnly appears scarcely capable of having swallowed up such numbers of things so widely scattered and distributed in such different places with such rapidity nothing was shut up nothing sealed up no list was made of anything whole storehouses were abandoned to the most worthless of men actors seized on this actresses on that the house was crowded with gamblers and full of drunken men people were drinking all day and that too in many places there were added to all this expense for this fellow was not invariably fortunate heavy gambling losses you might see in the cellar of the slaves couches covered with the most richly embroidered counterpanes of Nias pompeius wonder not then that all these things were so soon consumed such profligacy as that could have devoured not only the patrimony of one individual however ample it might have been as indeed his was but whole cities and kingdoms and then his house and gardens oh the cruel audacity did you dare to enter into that house did you dare to cross that most sacred threshold and to show your most profligate countenance to the household gods who protected that abode the house which for a long time no one could behold no one could pass by without tears are you not ashamed to dwell so long in that house 
one in which, stupid and ignorant as you are, still you can see nothing which is not painful to you. When you behold those beaks of ships in the vestibule, and those warlike trophies, do you fancy that you are entering into a house which belongs to you? It is impossible, although you are devoid of all sense and all feeling, as in truth you are, still you are acquainted with yourself, and with your trophies, and with your friends. Nor do I believe that you, either waking or sleeping, can ever act with quiet sense. It is impossible but that, were you ever so drunk and frantic, as in truth you are, when the recollection of the appearance of that illustrious man comes across you, you should be roused from sleep by your fears, often stirred up to madness if awake. I pity even the walls and the roof, for what did that house ever be held except what was modest, except which was proceeded from the purest principles and from the most virtuous practice? For that man was, O conscript fathers, as you yourselves know, not only illustrious abroad, but also admired at home, and not more praiseworthy for his exploits in foreign countries than his domestic arrangements. Now in his house every bedchamber is a brothel, and every dining-room is a cook-shop. Although he denies this, do not, do not make inquiries. He has become economical. He desired that mistress of his to take possession of whatever belonged to her, according to the laws of the Twelve Tables. He has taken his keys from her, and turned her out of doors. What a well-tried citizen! Of what proved virtue is he? The most honorable passion in whose life is the one when he divorced himself from this actress. But how constantly does he harp on the expression, the consul Antonius? This amounts to say, that most debauched consul, that most worthless of men, the consul. For what else is Antonius? For if any dignity were implied in the name, then I imagine your grandfather would sometimes have called himself the consul Antonius. But he never did. My colleague, too, your uncle, would have called himself so, unless you are the only Antonius. But I pass over those offenses which have no peculiar connection with the part you took in harassing the Republic. I return to that in which you bore so principal a share, that is, to the Civil War, and it is mainly owing to you that it was originated, and brought to a head, and carried on. Though you yourself took no personal share in it, partly through timidity, partly through profligacy, you had tasted, or rather had sucked in, the blood of fellow citizens. You had been in the Battle of Pharsalia as a leader. You had slain Lucius Domitius, a most illustrious and high-born man. You had pursued and put to death, in the most barbarous manner, many men who had escaped from the battle, and whom Caesar would perhaps have saved, as he did some others. And after having performed those exploits, what was the reason why you did not follow Caesar into Africa, especially when so large a portion of the war was still remaining? And, accordingly, what place did you obtain about Caesar's person after his return from Africa? What was your rank? He, whose quaestor you had been when general, whose master of the horse when he was dictator, to whom you had been the chief cause of war, this chief instigator of cruelty, the sharer of his plunder, his son, as you yourself said, by inheritance, proceeded against you for the money which you owed for the house and gardens, and for the other property which you had bought at that sale. At first you answered fiercely enough, and that I may not appear prejudiced against you in every particular, you used a tolerably just and reasonable argument. What? Does Gaius Caesar demand money of me? Why should he do so, any more than I should claim it of him? Was he victorious without my assistance? 
No, and he could never have been. It was I who supplied him with a pretext for civil war, and it was I who proposed mischievous laws, and it was I who took up arms against the consuls and generals of the Roman people, against the senate and people of Rome, against the gods of the country, against its altars and healths, against the country itself. Has he conquered for himself alone? Why should not those men whose common work the achievement is have booty also in common? You were only claiming your right. But what had that to do with it? He was the more powerful of the two. Therefore, stopping all your expostulations, he sent his soldiers to you, and to your sureties, when all of a sudden out came that splendid catalogue of yours. <laughs> How did men laugh that there should be so vast a catalogue, that there should be such a numerous and various list of possessions, all of which, with the exception of a portion of Messenum, there was nothing which the man who was putting them up to sale could call his own. And what a miserable sight was the auction! A little apparel of Pompeius's, and that stained, a few silver vessels belonging to the same man, all battered, some slaves in wretched condition, so that we grieved that there was anything remaining to be seen of those miserable relics. This auction, however, the heirs of Lucius Rubirius prevented from proceeding, being armed with the decree of Caesar to that effect. The spendthrift was embarrassed. He did not know which way to turn. It was at this very time that an assassin sent by him was said to have been detected with a dagger in the house of Caesar. And of this Caesar himself complained in the Senate, inveighing openly against you. Caesar departs to Spain, having granted you a few days' delay for making the payment, on account of your poverty. Even then you did not follow him. Had so good a gladiator as you retired from business so early? Can any one then fear a man who was as timid as this man in upholding his party, that is, in upholding his own fortunes? After some time he at last went into Spain, but, as he says, he could not arrive there in safety. How then did Dolabella manage to arrive there? Either, O Antonius, that cause ought never to have been undertaken, or when you had undertaken it, it should have been maintained to the end. Thrice did Caesar fight against his fellow citizens, in Thessaly, in Africa, and in Spain. Dolabella was present at all these battles. In the battle in Spain he even received a wound. If you ask my opinion, I wish he had not been there. But still, if his design at first was blamable, his consistency and firmness were praiseworthy. But what shall we say of you? In the first place, the children of Nias Pompeius sought to be restored to their country. Well, this concerned the common interests of the whole party. Besides that, they sought to recover their household gods, the gods of their country, their altars, their hearths, the tutelar gods of their family, all of which you had seized upon. And when they sought to recover those things by force of arms which belonged to them by the laws, who was it most natural? Although, in unjust and unnatural proceedings, what can there be that is natural? Still, who was it most natural to expect would fight against the children of Nias Pompeius? Who? Why, you, who had bought their property. Were you at Narbo to be sick over the tables of your entertainers while Dolabella was fighting the battles in Spain? And what a return was that of yours from Narbo? He even asked why I had returned so suddenly from my expedition. I have just briefly explained to you, O conscript fathers, the reason of my return. I was desirous, if I could, to be of service to the Republic, even before the first of January. For, as to your question, how I had returned, in the first place I returned by daylight, not in the dark. 
In the second place, I returned in shoes and in my Roman gown, not in any Gallic slippers or barbarian mantle. And even now you keep looking at me, and, as it seems, with great anger. Surely you would be reconciled to me if you knew how ashamed I am of your worthlessness, which you yourself are not ashamed of. Of all the profligate conduct of all the world, I never saw, I never heard of any more shameful than yours. You, who fancied yourself a master of the horse, when you were standing for, or I should rather say begging for the consulship for the ensuing year, ran in Gallic slippers and a barbarian mantle about the municipal towns and colonies of Gaul, from which we used to demand the consulship when the consulship was stood for and not begged for. But mark now the trifling character of the fellow, when about the tenth hour of the day he arrived at Red Rocks. He skulked into a little petty wine-shop, and hiding there, kept on drinking till evening, and from thence getting into a gig, and being driven rapidly to the city, he came to his own house with his head veiled. "'Who are you?' says the porter. "'An express for Marcus.' He is at once taken to the woman for whose sake he had come, and he delivered the letter to her. And when she had read it with tears, for it was written in a very amorous style, but the main subject of the letter was that he would have nothing to do with that actress for the future, and that he had discarded all his love for her, and transferred it to his correspondent. When she, I say, wept plentifully, this soft-hearted man could bear it no longer. He uncovered his head, and threw himself on her neck. Oh, worthless man! For what else can I call him? There is no more suitable expression for me to use. Was it for this that you disturbed the city by nocturnal alarms, and Italy with fears of many days' duration, in order that you may show yourself unexpectedly, and that a woman might see you before she hoped to do so? And he had at home a pretense of love, but out of doors a cause more discreditable still, namely, lest Lucius Plancus should sell up his sureties. But after you had been produced in the assembly by one of the tribunes of the people, and had replied that you had come on your own private business, you made even the people full of jokes against you. But, however, we have said too much about trifles. Let us come to more important subjects. You went a great distance to meet Caesar on his return from Spain. You went rapidly, you returned rapidly, in order that we might see that, if you were not brave, you were at least active. You again became intimate with him. I am sure I do not know how. Caesar had this peculiar characteristic. Whoever he knew to be utterly ruined by debt and needy, even if he knew him also to be an audacious and worthless man, he willingly admitted into his intimacy. You then, being admirably recommended to him by these circumstances, were ordered to be appointed consul, and that too as his own colleague. I do not make any complaint against Dolabella, who at that time was acting under compulsion, and was conjoled and deceived. But who is there who does not know with what great perfidy both of you treated Dolabella in that business? Caesar induced him to stand for the consulship. After having promised it to him, and pledged himself to aid him, he prevented his getting it, and transferred it to himself, and you endorsed his treachery with your own eagerness. The first of January arrives. We are convened in the Senate. Dolabella inveighed against him with much more fluency and premeditation than I am doing now. And what things were there which he said in his anger, O ye good gods! First of all, after Caesar had declared that before he departed he would order Dolabella to be made consul, and they deny that he was a king who was always doing and saying something of this sort. But after Caesar had said this, when this virtuous augur said that he was invested with a pontificate of that sort that he was able, by means of the auspices, either to hinder or to vitiate the comitia, 
just as he pleased, and he declared that he would do so. And here, in the first place, remark the incredible stupidity of the man. For what do you mean? Could you not just as well have done what you said you had the power to do, by the privileges which that pontificate had invested you, even if you were not an augur, if you were consul? Perhaps you could do it even more easily, for we augurs have only the power of announcing that the auspices have been observed, but the consuls and other magistrates have the right also of observing them whenever they choose. Be it so, you said this out of ignorance, for one must not demand prudence from a man who is never sober. But still, remark his impudence. Many months before, he said in the Senate that he would either prevent the Comitia from assembling for the election of Dolabella by means of the auspices, or that he would do what he actually did do. Can any one divine beforehand what defect there will be in the auspices, especially the man who is already determined to observe the heavens, which, in the first place, it is forbidden by law to do at the time of the Comitia? If any one had been observing the heavens, he is bound to give notice of it, not after the comitia are assembled, but before they are held. But this man's ignorance is joined to impudence, nor does he know what an augur ought to know, nor do what a modest man ought to do, and just recollect the whole of his conduct during his consulship, from that day up to the Ides of March. What lictor was ever so humble, so abject? He himself had no power at all, he begged everything of others, and thrusting his head into the hind part of his litter, he begged favors of his colleagues, to sell them himself afterwards. Behold, the day of the comitia for the election of Dolabella arrives. The prerogative century draws its lot. He is quiet. The vote is declared. He is silent. The first class is called. Its vote is declared. Then, as is the usual course, the votes are announced. Then the second class. All this is done faster than I have told it. When the business is over, that excellent augur, you would say he must be Gaius Lilius, says, We adjourn it to another day. Oh, the monstrous impudence of such a proceeding! What had you seen? What had you perceived? What had you heard? For you did not say that you had been observing the heavens, and indeed you do not say on this day. That defect then has arisen which you on the first of January had already foreseen would arise in which you had predicted so long before. Therefore, in truth, you have made a false declaration, representing the auspices, to your own great misfortune, I hope, rather than that of the Republic. You laid the Roman people under the obligations of religion. You, as augur, interrupted an augur. You, as consul, interrupted a consul by false declaration concerning the auspices. I will say no more, lest I seem to be pulling to pieces the acts of Dolabella, which must inevitably some time or other be brought before our college. But take notice of the arrogance and insolence of the fellow. As long as you please, Dolabella is a consul irregularly elected. Again, while you please, he is a consul elected with all proper regard to the auspices. If it means nothing when an augur gives this notice in the words which you give notice, then confess that you, when you said, We adjourn this to another day, were not even sober. But if those words had any meaning, then I, an augur, demand of my colleagues to know what that meaning is. But lest by chance, while enumerating his numerous exploits, our speech should pass over the finest actions of Marcus Antonius, let us come to the Lupercalia. He does not dissemble, O conscript fathers. It is plain that he is agitated. He perspires. He turns pale. Let him do what he pleases, provided he is not sick, and does not behave as he did in the Minucian colonnade. What defense can there be made for such beastly behavior? 
I wished to hear that I might see the fruit of those high wages of that rhetorician, of that land giving in Leontini. Your colleague was sitting in the rostra, clothed in purple robe, on a golden chair, wearing a crown. You mount the steps, you approach his chair. If you were a priest of Pan, you ought to have recollected that you were consul too. You display a diadem. There was a groan over the whole forum. Where did the diadem come from? For you had not picked it up when lying on the ground, but you had brought it from home with you, a premeditated and deliberately planned wickedness. You placed the diadem on his head amid the groans of the people. He rejected it amidst great applause. You then alone, O wicked man, were found both to advise the assumption of kingly power and to wish to have him for your master, who was your colleague, and also to try what the Roman people might be able to bear and to endure. Moreover, you even sought to move his pity. You threw yourself at his feet as a suppliant, begging for what? To be a slave? You might beg it for yourself, when you had lived in such a way from the time when you were a boy that you could bear everything, and you would find no difficulty in being a slave. And certainly you had no commission from the Roman people to try for such a thing for them. Oh, how splendid was that eloquence of yours, when you harangued the people stark naked! What could be more foul than this, more shameful than this? more deserving of every sort of punishment. Are you waiting for me to prick you more? This that I am saying must tear you and bring blood enough if you are to have any feeling at all. I am afraid that I may be detracting from the glory of some most eminent men. Still, my indignation should find a voice. What can be more scandalous than for that man to live who placed the diadem on a man's head, when every one confesses that that man was deservedly slain who rejected it? And, moreover, he caused it to be recorded in the annals under the head of Lupercalia, that Marcus Antonius, the consul, by command of the people, had offered the kingdom to Gaius Caesar, perpetual dictator, and that Caesar had refused to accept it. I now am not much more surprised at your seeking to disturb the general tranquillity, at your hating not only the city, but the light of day, and that your living with a pack of abandoned robbers, disregarding the day, yet regarding nothing beyond the day, for where can you be safe in peace? What place can there be for you where laws and courts of justice have sway, both of which you, as far as in you lay, destroyed by the substitution of kingly power? Was it for this that Lucius Tarquinius was driven out, that Spurius Cassius and Spurius Milius, and that Marcus Manlius were slain, that many years afterwards a king might be established at Rome by Marcus Antonius, though the bare idea was impiety? However, let us return to the auspices. With respect to all the things which Caesar was intending to do in the Senate on the Ides of March, I ask whether you have done anything. I heard, indeed, that you have come down prepared, because you thought that I had intended to speak about your having made a false statement respecting the auspices, though it was still necessary for us to respect them. The fortune of the Roman people saved us from that day. Did the death of Caesar also put an end to your opinion respecting the auspices? but I have come to mention that occasion which must be allowed to precede those matters which I have begun to address. What a flight was that of yours! What alarm was yours on that memorable day! How, from the consciousness of your wickedness, did you despair of your life? How, while flying, were you enabled secretly to get home by the kindness of those men who wished to save you, thinking you would show more sense than you do? Oh, how vain have at all times been my true predictions of the future! I told those deliverers of ours in the capital, when they wished me to go to you to exhort you to defend the Republic, that as long as you were in fear you would promise everything, 
but that as soon as you had emancipated yourself from alarm, you would be yourself again. Therefore, while all the rest of the men of consular rank were going backwards and forwards to you, I adhered to my opinion, nor did I see you at all that day, or the next, nor did I think it possible for an alliance between virtuous citizens and a most unprincipled enemy to be made, so as to last, by any treaty or engagement whatever. The third day I came to the temple of Tellus, even then very much against my will, as armed men were blockading all the approaches. What a day that was for you, O Marcus Antonius, although you showed yourself all of a sudden an enemy to me. Still I pity you for having envied yourself. What a man, O ye immortal gods, and how great a man might you have been, if you had been able to preserve the inclination you displayed that day. We should still have peace which was made by the pledge of a hostage, a boy of noble youth, the grandson of Marcus Bambalio, although it was fear that was then making you a good citizen, which is never a lasting teacher of duty. Your own audacity, which never departs from you as long as you are free from fear, has made you a worthless one. Although even at that time, when they thought you an excellent man, though I indeed differed from that opinion, you behaved with the greatest wickedness while presiding at the funeral of the tyrant, if that ought to be called a funeral. All that fine panegyric was yours, that commiseration was yours, that exhortation was yours. It was you, you, I say, who hurled those firebrands, both those with which your friend was nearly burnt, and those by which the house of Lucius Bellianus was set on fire and destroyed. It was you who let loose those attacks of abandoned men, slaves for the most part, which we repelled by violence and our own personal exertions. It was you who set them on to attack our houses. And yet you, as if you wiped off all the soot and all the smoke in the ensuing days, carried those excellent resolutions in the capital, that no document conferring any exemption or granting any favor should be published after the Ides of March. You recollect yourself what you said about the exiles. You know what you said about the exemption. But the best of all was that you forever abolished the name of the dictatorship in the Republic, which act appeared to show that you had conceived such a hatred of kingly power that you took away all fear of it for the future, on account of him who had been the last dictator. To other men the Republic now seemed established, but it did not appear so at all to me, as I was afraid of every sort of shipwreck, as long as you were at the helm. Have I been deceived, or was it possible for that man long to continue unlike himself? While you were all looking on, documents were fixed up over the whole capital, and exemptions were being sold, not merely to individuals, but to entire states. The freedom of the city was now being given, not to single persons only, but to whole provinces. Therefore, if these acts are to stand, and stand they cannot if the Republic stands too, then, O conscript fathers, you have lost whole provinces, and not the revenues only, but the actual empire of the Roman people has been diminished by a market this man held in his own house. Where are the seven hundred millions of sesterces which were entered in the account books, which are in the Temple of Ops, a sum lamentable indeed, as to the means by which it was procured, but still one which, if it were not restored to those whom it belonged, might save us from taxes. And how was it, when you owed forty millions of sesterces on the 15th of March, you ceased to owe them on the 1st of April? Those things are quite countless, which were purchased by different people, not without your knowledge. But there was one excellent decree posted in the capital, affecting King Diotorius, a most devoted friend to the Roman people. And when that decree was posted up, there was no one who, 
amid all his indignation, could restrain his laughter. For ever was a more bitter enemy to another was Caesar to Deotarius. He was as hostile to him as he was to this order, to the equestrian order, to the people of Massilia, and to all men whom he knew to look on the republic of the Roman people with attachment. But this man, who neither present nor absent, could ever obtain from him any favor of justice while he was alive, became quite an influential man with him when he was dead. When present with him in his house, he was called for him, though he was his host. He had made him give in his accounts of his revenue. He had exacted money from him. He had established one of his Greek retainers in his tetrarchy and he had taken Armenia from him, which had been given to him by the Senate. While he was alive, he deprived him of all those things. Now that he is dead, he gives them back again. And in what words? At one time he says, that it appears to him to be just. At another, that it appears not to be unjust. What a strange combination of words. But while alive, I know this, for I always supported Deotarius, who was at a distance, he never said that anything which we were asking for, for him, appeared just to him. A bond for ten millions of sesterces was entered into the woman's apartment, where many things had been sold, and are still being sold, by his ambassadors, well-meaning men, but timid and inexperienced in business, without my advice or that of the rest of the hereditary friends of the monarch. And I advise you to consider carefully what you intend to do with reference to this bond. For the king himself, of his own accord, without waiting for any of Caesar's memoranda, the moment that he heard of his death, recovered his own rights by his own courage and energy. He, like a wise man, knew that this was always the law, that those men from whom the things which tyrants had taken away had been taken, might recover them when the tyrants were slain. No lawyer, therefore, not even he who is your lawyer, and yours alone, by whose advice you do all those things, will say that anything is due to you by virtue of that bond, for those things which had been recovered before that bond was executed. For he did not purchase them of you, but before you undertook to sell him his own property, he had taken possession of it. He was a man, we indeed deserve to be despised, who hate the author of the actions, but uphold the actions themselves. Why need I mention the countless mass of people, the innumerable autographs which have been brought forward? writings of which there are imitators who sell their forgeries as openly as if they were gladiators' playbills. Therefore there are now such heaps of money piled up in that man's house, that is weighed out instead of being counted. But how blind is avarice! Lately, too, a document has been posted up, by which the most wealthy cities of the Cretans are released from tribute, and by which is it ordained that after the expiration of the consulship of Marcus Brutus, Crete shall cease to be a province." Are you in your senses? Ought you not to be put in confinement? Was it possible for there really to be a decree of Caesar's exempting Crete after the departure of Marcus Brutus, when Brutus had no connection whatever with Crete, and while Caesar was alive? But for the sale of this decree, that you may not, O conscript fathers, think it wholly ineffectual, you have lost the province of Crete. There was nothing in the whole world which any one wanted to buy that this fellow was not ready to sell." Caesar, too, I suppose, made up the law about the exiles which you have posted up. I do not wish to press upon any one in misfortune. I only complain, in the first place, that the return of these men had discredit thrown upon it, that whose cause Caesar judged to be different from that of the rest. And in the second place, I do not know why you did not mete out the same measure to all, for there cannot be more than three or four left. Why do they who are in a similar misfortune enjoy a similar degree of your mercy? 
why do you treat them as you treated your uncle, about whom you refused to pass a law when you were passing one about all the rest, and whom at the same time you encouraged to stand for the censorship, and instigated him to a canvass which excited the ridicule and the complaint of every one? But why did you not hold that comitia? Was it because a tribune of the people announced that there had been an ill-omened flash of lightning seen? When you have any interest of your own to serve, then auspices are all nothing, but when it is only your friends who are concerned, then you become scrupulous. What more? Did you not also desert him in the matter of the septeverate? Yes, for he interfered with me. What were you afraid of? I suppose that you were afraid you would be able to refuse him nothing if he were restored to the full possession of his rights. You loaded him with every species of insult, a man whom you ought to have considered in the place of a father to you, if you had only piety or natural affection at all. You put away his daughter, your own cousin, having already looked out and provided yourself beforehand with another. That was not enough. You accused a most chaste woman of misconduct. Who can go beyond this? Yet you were not content with this. In a very full senate held on the 1st of January, while your uncle was present, you dared to say that this was your reason for hatred of Dolabella, that you had ascertained that he had committed adultery with your cousin and your wife. Who can decide whether it was more shameless of you to make such profligate and such impious statements about that unhappy woman in the senate, or more wicked to make them against Dolabella, or more scandalous to make them in the presence of her father, or more cruel to make them at all? However, let us return to the subject of Caesar's written papers. How were they verified by you? For the acts of Caesar were for peace's sake confirmed by the Senate, that is to say, the acts which Caesar had really done, not those which Antonius said that Caesar had done. Where do all these come from? By whom are they produced and vouched for? If they are false, why are they ratified? If they are true, why are they sold? But the vote which was come to enjoin you, and after the first of June, to make an examination of Caesar's acts with the assistance of counsel. What counsel did you consult? Whom did you ever invite to help you? Was it the first of June that you waited for? Was it the day on which you, having traveled all through the colonies where the veterans were settled, returned escorted by a band of armed men? Oh, what a splendid progress of yours was that in the months of April and May, when you attempted even to lead a colony to Capua. How you made your escape from thence, or rather how you barely made your escape, we all know. And now you are still threatening that city. I wish you would try, and we should not be forced to say, barely. However, what a splendid progress of yours that was. Why need I mention your preparations for banquets? Why your frantic hard drinking? Those things are only an injury to yourself. These are injuries to us. We thought that a great blow was inflicted on the Republic when the Campanian district was released from the payment of taxes, in order to be given to the soldiery. But you have divided it among your partners in drunkenness and gambling. I tell you, O conscript fathers, that a lot of buffoons and actresses have been settled in the district of Campania. Why should I now complain of what had been done in the district of Leontini? Although formerly these lands of Campania and Leontini were considered part of the patrimony of the Roman people, and were productive of great revenue and very fertile, you gave your physician three thousand acres. What would you have done if he had cured you? And two thousand acres to your master of oratory. What would you have done if he had been able to make you eloquent? <laughs> However, let us return to your progress and to Italy. You led a colony to Casalinum, a place to which Caesar had previously led one. 
you did indeed consult me by letter about the colony of capua but i should have given you the same answer about casalinum whether you could legally lead a new colony to a place where there was a colony already i said that a new colony could not be legally conducted to an existing colony which had been established with a due observance to the auspices as long as it remained in a flourishing state but i wrote you word that new colonists might be enrolled among the old ones but you elated and insolate disregarding all the respect due to the auspices led a colony to Casalinum, whither one had been previously led a few years before, in a new colony with a plough. By that plough you almost grazed the gate of Capua, as if to diminish the territory of that flourishing colony. After this violation of all religious observances, you hasten off to the estate of Marcus Varro, a most conscientious and upright man, at Casinum. By what right, by what face did you do this? by just the same you will say as that with which you entered the estates of the heirs of lucius rubirius or the heirs of lucius tercelius or other innumerable possessions if you got the right from any auction let the auction have all the force with which it was entitled let the writings be a force providing they are the writings of caesar and not your own writings by which you are bound not these which you have released from obligation but who says that the estate of Varro at Cassinum was ever sold at all? Who ever saw any notice of that auction? Who ever heard the voice of the auctioneer? You say that you sent a man to Alexandria to buy it of Caesar. It was too long to wait for Caesar himself to come. But who ever heard, and there was no man about whose safety more people were anxious, that any part whatever of Varro's property had been confiscated? What shall we say if Caesar even wrote you that you were to give it up? What can be said strong enough for such enormous impudence? Remove for a while those swords which we see around us. You shall now see that the cause of Caesar's auctions is one thing, and that of your confidence and rashness is another. For not shall the owner drive you from that estate, but any one of his friends, or neighbors, or hereditary connections, or any agent, will have the right to do so. How many days did he spend reveling in the most scandalous manner in that villa? From the third hour... There was one scene of drinking, gambling, and vomiting. Alas, for the unhappy house itself! How different a master from its former one has it fallen to the share of! Although, how is he the master at all? But still, by how different a person has it been occupied? For Marcus Varro used it as a place of retirement for his studies, not as a theatre for his lusts. What noble discussions used to take place in that villa! What ideas were originated there! What writings were composed there! The laws of the Roman people, the materials of our ancestors, the consideration of all wisdom and all learning were the topics that used to be dwelt there. But now, while you were the intruder there, for I will not call you master, every place was resounding with the voices of drunken men. The pavements were floating with wine, the walls were dripping, nobly born boys were mixing with the basest hirelings, prostitutes with mothers of families. Men came from Cassinum, from Aquinum, from Interamna to salute him. No one was admitted. That indeed was proper, for the ordinary marks of respect were unsuited to the most profligate of men. When going thence to Rome, he approached Aquinum. A pretty, numerous company, for it is a populous municipality, came out to meet him. But he was carried through the town in a covered litter, as if he had been dead. The people of Aquinum acted foolishly, no doubt, but still they were in his road. What did the people of Aquina do? who, although they were out of his line of road, came down to meet him, in order to pay him their respects, as if he were consul, 
It is an incredible thing to say, but still it is only too notorious at that time that he returned nobody's salutations, especially as he had two men of Aquina with him, Musella and Laco, one of whom had the care of his swords, the other of his drinking cups. Why should I mention the threats and insults with which he invaded against the people of Tinium Secundium, with which he harassed the men of Puteoli, because they had adopted Gaius Cassius and the Bruti as their patrons? A choice dictated, in truth, by great wisdom and great zeal, benevolence and affection for them, not by violence and force of arms, by which men had been compelled to choose you and Basilus and others like you both, men whom no one would choose to have for his own clients, much less would be their client himself. In the meantime, while you yourself were absent, what a day that was for your colleague when he overturned that tomb in the forum, which you were accustomed to regard with veneration. And then that auction was announced to you. You, as it was agreed upon by all who were with you at the time, fainted away. What happened afterwards I know not. I imagine that terror and arms got the mastery. At all events, you dragged your colleague down from his heaven, and you rendered him, not even now like yourself, but at all events very unlike his own former self. After that, what a return was that of yours to Rome! How great was the agitation of the whole city! We recollected Cinna being too powerful. After him, we had seen Sulla with absolute authority. We had lately beheld Caesar acting as king. There were, perhaps, swords, but they were sheathed, and they were not very numerous. But how great and how barbaric a procession is yours! Men follow you in battle array with drawn swords. We see whole litters full of shields borne along. And yet, by custom, O conscript fathers, we have become inured and callous to those things. When, on the first of June, we wished to come to the Senate, as it had been ordained, we were suddenly frightened and forced to flee. But he, as having no need of a Senate, did not miss any of us, or rather rejoiced at our departure and immediately proceeded to those marvelous exploits of his. He, who had defended the memoranda of Caesar for the sake of his own profit, overturned the laws of Caesar, and good laws too, for the sake of being able to agitate the Republic. He increased the number of years that magistrates were to enjoy the provinces. Moreover, though he was bound to be the defender of the acts of Caesar, he rescinded them both with reverence to public and private transactions. In public transactions, nothing is more authoritative than law. In private affairs, the most valid of all deeds is a will. Of the laws, some he abolished without giving the least notice. Others he gave notice of bills to abolish. Wills he annulled, though they had been at all times held sacred, even in the case of the very meanest of citizens. As for the statues and pictures which Caesar bequeathed to the people, together with his gardens, those he carried away, some to the house which belonged to Pompeius, and some to Scipio's villa. And are you not then diligent in doing honor to Caesar's memory? Do you love him even now that he is dead? What greater honor had he obtained than having a holy cushion, an image, a temple, and a priest? As then Jupiter and Mars and Quirinus have priests, so Marcus Antonius is the priest of the god Julius. Why then do you delay? Why are not you inaugurated? Choose a day. Select someone to inaugurate you. We are colleagues. No one will refuse you, O oh, you detestable man, whether you are the priest of a tyrant or of a dead man. I ask you, then, whether you are ignorant what day this is. Are you ignorant that yesterday was the fourth day of the Roman games in the circus, and that you yourself submitted to a motion of the people, that a fifth day should be added besides, in the honor of Caesar? 
Why are we not all clad in the praetexta? Why are we permitting the honor by which your law was appointed for Caesar to be deserted? Had you no objection to so holy a day being polluted by the addition of supplications, while you did not choose it to be so by the addition of ceremonies connected with a sacred cushion? Either take away religion in every case, or preserve it in every case. You will ask whether I approve of his having a sacred cushion, a temple, and a priest. I approve of none of these things. But you, who are defending the acts of Caesar, what reason can you give for defending some and disregarding others? Unless indeed you choose to admit that you measure everything by your own gain, and not by his dignity. Why will you not reply to these arguments? For I am waiting to witness your eloquence. I knew your grandfather, who was a most eloquent man, but I know you to be a more undisguised speaker than he was. He never harangued the people naked, but we have seen your breast, man without disguise as you are. Will you not make any reply to these statements? Will you dare to open your mouth at all? Can we find one single article in this long speech of mine to which you trust that you can make any answer? However, we shall say no more of what is past. But this single day, this very day that is now, this very moment while I am speaking, defend your conduct during this very moment, if you can. Why has the Senate been surrounded with a belt of armed men? Why are your satellites listening to me sword in hand? Why are not the folding doors of the Temple of Concord open? Why do you bring men of all nations, the most barbarous, Illyrians, armed with arrows into the forum? He says that he does so as a guard. Is it not better to perish a thousand times than to be unable to live in one's own city without a guard of armed men? But believe me, there is no protection in that. A man must be defended by the affection and good will of his fellow citizens, not by arms. The Roman people will take them from you, will wrest them from your hands. I wish that they may do so while we are still safe. However, you treat us as long as you adopt these counsels. It is impossible for you, believe me, to last long. In truth, that wife of yours, who is so far removed from covetousness, and whom I mention without intending any slight to her, has been too long owing her third payment to the state. The Roman people has men to whom it can entrust the helm of the state, and wherever they are, there is all the defense of the republic, or rather there is the republic itself, which as yet has only avenged, but has not re-established itself. Truly and surely has the republic most high-born youths ready to defend it, though they may for a time keep in the background for a desire for tranquility, yet they can be recalled by the republic at any time. The name of peace is sweet. The thing itself is most salutary, but between peace and slavery there is a wide difference. Peace is liberty and tranquility. Slavery is the worst of all evils, to be repelled, if need be, not only by war, but even by death. But if those deliverers of ours have taken themselves away out of our sight, still they have left behind the example of their conduct. They have done what no one else has done. Brutus pursued Tarquinus with war, who was a king when it was lawful for a king to exist in Rome. Spurius Cassius, Spurius Milius, and Marcus Manlius were all slain because they were suspected of aiming at regal power. These are the first men who have ever ventured to attack, sword in hand, a man who was not aiming at regal power, but actually rejoining. Their action is not only itself a glorious and godlike exploit, but is also one put forth for our imitation, especially since by it they have acquired such glory as appears hardly to be bounded by heaven itself. For although in the very consciousness of a glorious action there is a certain reward, 
Still, I do not consider immortality of glory a thing to be despised by one who is himself mortal. Recollect then, O Marcus Antonius, that day on which you abolished the dictatorship, set before you the joy of the Senate and people of Rome, compare it with this infamous market held by you and your friends, and then you will understand how great is the difference between praise and profit. But in truth, just as some people, through some disease which has blunted the senses, have no conception of the niceness of food, so men who are lustful, avaricious, and criminal have no taste for true glory. But if praise alone cannot allure you to act rightly, still cannot even fear turn you away from the most shameful actions? You are not afraid of the courts of justice. If it is because you are innocent, I praise you. If it is because you trust in your power of overbearing them by violence, are you ignorant of what that man has to fear, who on such an account as that does not fear the courts of justice? But if you are not afraid of brave men and illustrious citizens because they are prevented from attacking you by your armed retinue, still, believe me, your own fellows will not long endure you. And what a life it is, day and night, to be fearing danger from one's own people, unless, indeed, you have men who are bound to you by greater kindness than some of those men by whom he was slain were bound to Caesar, or unless there are points in which you can be compared with him. In that man were combined genius, method, memory, literature, prudence, deliberation, and industry. He had performed exploits in war which, though calamitous for the Republic, were nevertheless mighty deeds. Having for many years aimed at being a king, he had with great labor and with much personal danger accomplished what he had attended. He had conciliated the ignorant multitude by presents, by monuments, his largesses by food, and by banquets. He had bound his own party to him by rewards, and his adversaries by the appearances of clemency. Why need I say much on such a subject? He had already brought a free city, partly by fear, partly by patience, into the habit of slavery. With him I can, indeed, compare you as to your desire to reign, but in all other respects you are in no degree to be compared with him. But from the many evils which by him have been burnt into the Republic, still there is this good, that the Roman people has now learned how much to believe every one, to whom to trust itself, and against whom to guard. Do you never think on these things? Do you not understand that it is enough for brave men to have learnt how noble a thing it is to the act? How grateful it is by the benefit done, how glorious as to the fame acquired, to slay a tyrant? When men could not bear him, do you think that they will bear you? Believe me, the time will come when men will race to one another to do this deed, when no one will wait for the tardy arrival of an opportunity. Consider, I beg you, Marcus Antonius, do some time or other consider the Republic. Think of the family in which you were born, not of the men with whom you are living. Be reconciled to the Republic, however do you decide on your conduct. As to mine, I myself will declare what shall be. I defended the Republic as a young man. I will not abandon it now that I am old. I scorn the sword of Catiline. I will not quail before yours. No, I will rather cheerfully expose my own person, if the liberty of the city can be restored by my death. May the indignation of the Roman people at last bring forth what it has so long been laboring with. In truth, if twenty years ago, in this very temple, I asserted that death could not come prematurely upon a man of consular rank, with how much more truth must I now say the same of an old man? To me indeed, O conscript fathers, death is now even desirable 
after all the honors which I have gained, and the deeds which I have done. I only pray for these two things. One, that dying I may leave the Roman people free. No greater boon than this can be granted to the immortal gods. The other, that every one may meet with a fate suitable to his deserts and the conduct towards the Republic. End of the Second Philippic